How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Lord, as we turn to your word now, would you uh, speak into our lives, we pray. Amen. Great to have you with us, especially if you're visiting. You'll notice that, um, yeah, welcome, Bob. Great to have you back. Um, um, it's, um, we are, in the, for the next five weeks, going to be uh, exploring um, a book of the Bible that certainly in my ministry uh, has been slightly overlooked, and um, we're going to be going through Lamentations. Yeah, so the name gives it away. Not a cheerful book. Um, from a prophet who wasn't, maybe, it was written by Jeremiah, we're not quite sure. Not exactly the most cheerful prophet either, but there we are. Um, and it's really a, a response to a number of pastoral conversations that Chris and I have had, certainly over this last year, but certainly as we, as um, a church and as a culture, <clears throat> have, you know, an, endured a number of things in the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, and we thought that this might be uh, a helpful, cathartic exercise. And maybe you may have just been recently engaged or won the lottery and be feeling on top of the world, and that's wonderful. Bless you. Give generously while the rest of us uh, lament our way through Lent. Um, and, it's, and it's really that sense of finding the tension between how do we make sense of what we've been through? And it might be big things, it might be small things. And as we make sense of these things, uh, how do we, is it possible to get back to what it was like before? We had a moment on Friday night, it was uh, uh, a rather splendid evening, we're outside in the back playing cards with the boys, and I can tell that Ethan and Tom are excelling in math because I'm losing every hand of, of cards and uh, trying desperately to beat them. Um, and I stepped in to do something and then Ethan came running in um, to me and said, Dad, you gotta come quick, everyone's crying. I thought, oh, that's not expected. Um, so I, I come out and, and sure enough, people are crying. Well, not people, I mean, it's my wife, Rachel, and, and the two boys, and Toby's happily playing in the sandpit. Um, and uh, I said, what's going on? Because uh, it didn't feel like normal tears. You know, there's, I stub my toe tears, and then there's, there's big tears. And, um, and Rachel just said, we're, we're crying because we just started talking about my mother Audrey and how since COVID hit, the boys haven't seen her in almost two and a half years. And uh, because international travel being what it was, she lives in England, and uh, the realities of a pandemic or FaceTime's okay, but it's not the same thing. And these tears were tears of lament. And uh, they were grieving the loss, the loss of physical presence. And they were grieving and lamenting the separation from a loved one. Now, 
lament and our hearts are wired in such a way that when we experience loss, it feels odd. There's never any order to it. It's chaotic because we, you and I were never designed to experience loss. We were not <clears throat> originally designed to experience grief. The plan from the beginning was that we would be with those we love and never be separated from them. That there'd be no sickness, there'd be no sin, that we would thrive. And the reality of the world, the reality of the fall, is that suddenly humanity is faced with something that is outside of design. And so when we grieve, when we go through small episodes like that or big episodes of the loss of a loved one prematurely, the loss of a child, the sudden reversal of fortunes, the trauma that can happen through all manner of things, the question becomes how do we get back <clears throat> to that happy place or is that a country we never go to again? How do we get back to normal? Is that possible? How do we find a new normal? And so that's why lamentations might be helpful. And so open your, 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 um, your bulletin. Some of our bulletins didn't print pages seven and eight, so you might need a, a spare one, but um, just open to lamentations. Or if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can uh, turn to lamentations. And let me just give you a short recap as we look at the start of this book. Remember, God had promised Abraham the land that he'd given David victory over to make Jerusalem Israel's capital. Jerusalem, from the beginning, was promised a place of privilege, and privilege, when embraced properly, comes with great responsibility, comes with great uh, desire to serve those perhaps not in the same capacity. And from David comes the royal line of kings. And you have God's presence there in the temple, his tangible presence. And there, and that's where the priests maintain the rituals of Israel's worship. And then after 500 years of all of this history, in the summer of 587 BC, the city falls to Babylon. The city is decimated and gone. Uh, it's written, as I said earlier, by an anonymous author, but it's someone who survived the Babylonian siege, and he's now reflecting back on the destruction and the exile that followed. It's the most horrendous catastrophe that Israel has experienced up to this point. And so we have five poems in Lamentations, and these poems were originally written to be sung and they're a form of two things, of protest, and they're a form of repentance. It's this combination of taking responsibility for what has led us to this point and turning and saying, Lord, come, only you can help, only you can heal. And they're a way of getting everyone's attention, including God's, the horrible things that happened in the world and that shouldn't be tolerated. And so to lament is a form of prayer that processes emotion. So in Lamentations, we find God's people venting their anger and dismay at the ruin caused by sin and selfishness. It's a deep, guttural confession of sin and lament over failure. And so these poems are a place to voice confusion 
And a common theme when people suffer is it raises questions. Questions primarily about God and about his promises. And none of this is looked down on in the scriptures. Just the opposite, it's encouraged. And so these poems of lament give a sacred dignity to human suffering. And so if you're questioning and you're reeling from something you've suffered, we believe this is the place you should be. We believe that God wants to hear it and to feel free to voice it. So chapter one that we're looking at is actually a very well-ordered acrostic poem. I skipped Hebrew and Greek. I skipped it, and I played rugby instead. And people said to me, how'd that work for you? I said, well, a number of the rugby team came to faith, and I leave the Hebrew and the Greek to the experts, like some of you here present. But the, why I talk about the structure of a passage it sounds kind of boring, except that because it's so ordered, it stands in contrast to the chaos caused by suffering. Suffering and pain is never ordered. Even the most self-disciplined and self-controlled person, when they go through hardship, makes a, a glorious mess. Because the heart feels what the heart feels. And so, what we see is, is that the disorder of the pain and the confusion is put into order as a part of process. As they try to explain something that's inexpressible. So let's look at chapter one and just a few observations before we carry on with our service. The first is, if you look down, you say, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks, and it goes on. And the first thing you see is there is a complete contrast here of total reversal. Verse 1 starts with the word how. And in the culture of the day, this is the language of funerals, not just for people, but interestingly enough, the language of a funeral over even the loss of an entire city. And so we have a complete reversal. We have a city that was full is now lonely. A city that was great is now a widow. A person who is a, a princess is now a slave. And so the reversal of fortunes is total. The privilege is gone. Which begs the question, why? Why is it gone? And why has the city become a woman? Well, it's, it's, um, it's all very intentional because female language points to the position of a royal daughter. A royal daughter, which is then, uh, the theme is then turned into the bride of Christ. All right, so it's this idea of a, of a person who represents not just the king, but who represents a family who is entrusted with not just the business of the family, but of making what makes that family tick known to the world so that the family continue to grow. And so what we have here is this royal daughter, this city 
the one who speaks for the king, the one who does and acts out the king's business is suddenly in a place of utter failure. The privilege was turned on its head. And we have, it's quite common, isn't it? Privilege now isn't so much an admirable uh, trait. It's, it's something that's looked down on. You know, I had someone once accuse me a couple years ago of being privileged. I said, oh, absolutely. And I was told from birth that because I grew up in a place of privilege that I was to serve and that so much would be expected of me. And they said, oh, I didn't expect that. I said, no, but you can expect more from me. And let's see what we do. Jerusalem has abused its place of privilege. Instead of being a center of justice where the poor could come and escape poverty, instead of a place of of being a, a voice for those who had no voice, instead of being a place where the, the, the nature and character of God would be known, it's all turned on its head. And it becomes a city that propagates injustice in every area. So the failure of the daughter becomes the failure of the king. The ridicule of the daughter becomes the ridicule of the king. And the shame of the daughter becomes the shame of the king. And we see here part of it is that God takes it. He absorbs it. Because he knows that the goal here is to have a child who will make him known perfectly so that the people will know that's what he's like. And so at the very beginning we have this loss because it points to the need of a child who will come, who will show us what the father's like. And so we have this arrow that points to the need for Jesus. So Zion, Lady Zion speaks and she calls on the Lord to notice her fate and through this image, the poet, he's showing that the city's destruction has brought a level of psychological trauma on the Israelites that can only be expressed as the experience of a funeral in the death of a loved one. And says, and it was our fault, which is fascinating. Suffering in silence is not a virtue in this book. People are never expected to suffer in silence. They're expected to suffer loudly. God's people are not asked to deny their emotions, but voice their protest, vent their feelings, and pour it out before God. Later on in verses 18 and 20, we have, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In part, it points to the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Only in part because Jesus was without sin. But powerfully, as we know in his life, he takes what was never his as his own so that you and I, though we do sin, would be able to be forgiven. So there's a recognition throughout Lamentations, and you'll see it in the next few weeks, that it's gone so horribly wrong that we have nothing left to do but to seek God, because only he can fix this, only he can heal this, only he can make things right. Um, In the middle of New York City, on Fulton Street, 
1857. A retired businessman was engaged to bring all of his business expertise to an area of Manhattan where the church had died. It's an interesting time of history. There's a lot going on. It's the, it's, um, and, and what happens is, is through this man who's relatively unknown, Jeremy Lamphere, a prayer meeting became known as, became and turned into one of the fastest growing intense movements of God in America. Um, if you are a st student of that time in history, you know it's a relatively godless time because there's so much happening. Um, New York has had an incredible unemployment rate. You've got slavery is tearing the country apart. and There are rumors of war in the streets. And you've got an edge of desperation and anxiety. And no one, churches are closing except for this one Dutch church. And a retired businessman, Jeremy, agrees to work for the church in the area and is, marshals all of his business expertise to an area that has seen a massive demographic change. And the local church had all but died. But here he agrees to work for them to see what might be done to rejuvenate the congregation. He works for three months tirelessly and sees no fruit. He's weary, he's discouraged, and at a loss of what to do. The desperation in the streets grows. He's visited every shop. He's, he's talked to as many business people as he can. He's visited the boarding houses. He's tried to share the gospel, and none of it has worked. And so, one day, he places a placard on the door of the church, hard to read for the writing that says, from 12 to 1 o'clock, stop for 5, 10, or 20 minutes, or the whole time, as your time admits, on September 23rd. So these words are placed out front of the church in Manhattan, and for 30 minutes, no one comes in. And then after 30 minutes, another person arrives, and then four more show up before the hour is over. Nobody could imagine what would happen next. But for the next 12 months, and then for at least an 18-month period in American history, we have a very unique outpouring of revival that was centered completely on prayer. What were their prayers like? They were prayers of lament. They came because they knew that the problems going on in their family, the problems going on in the city, the problems going on at work, could not be fixed by human hands. It needed an agency of somebody who could heal and who could reach as if right into the heart of the person and bring healing. And so it was a simple prayer meeting. And roughly after six months, this lonely prayer meeting has grown, not only in attendance at that one location, but almost every downtown New York church and public theater is filled to capacity for an hour during lunch. And more than 10,000 men and women are gathering daily for prayer. It's unbelievable, it's almost unfathomable. It's talked about a movement of God in a city like New York where there are thousands upon thousands taking their lunch break to pray. They were prayers of lament. They started with a hymn, then people wrote down the prayer requests on a sheet of paper, they were passed forward, and then people would literally read and pray the prayers. And God began to move. It spread from New York to Boston to Chicago and then overseas to England. Lament leads to a place of desperation and brings about a clarity 
that above all else we need Jesus because only he can fix, heal, and mend what we're facing. For a city that has so many Bible studies, like Dallas, we need to study the word because the word gives us hope. So I'm not saying we need to stop reading the Bible. In fact, I commend it to you. But we need to pray. There was no teaching at these prayer meetings. Just prayer for an hour. Charles Finney wrote this about this movement. There is such a great confidence in the prevalence of prayer that the people are very extensively seem to prefer meeting for prayer to meeting for preaching. The general impression seems to me that we have had instruction until our hearts have been hardened. It's time for us to pray, is what he wrote. Note the contrast in verse one of Lamentations. Surrounded by people, now lonely, great, and now widow, without inheritance, princess, now slave. We've lived these last two years, maybe longer, with these kind of reversals going on. And Jesus subjected himself to the same reversal in our, so that in our loneliness, in our desolation, in our destitution, we might find him as the one who can help because he himself endured the same. He's the one who can fix it. He's the one we need. So practically, two things I'm gonna refer you to. I get a daily email at crazy o'clock, 5 a.m., called Bless Every Home. And it gives me the names of my neighbors, and it even writes down a prayer for me to pray for them. And I do. And I've done it for seven years. And then all of a sudden, God gave us an opportunity to minister to our neighbors. But I think it's because I just prayed this prayer that was spoon-fed to me. Bless every home. I commend it to you. Look it up. The second is called Lectio 365. It's a way to start the day, to pray not just for the needs of the world, but for yourself. Because the lesson of Lamentations is that the child of God forgot how to be a child. And these are days, friends, where we learn what it means again to be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. So let's pray. Why don't we stand? Lord Jesus, some of us may, it's likely that some of us growing up in the church may have felt that it, this kind of talk of lament isn't acceptable, or it's not the right thing. But thank you, Lord, for your word that says that this is a place where we are free to lament, that we are not to deny our emotions, but to bring them before you. And so, Jesus, in your name, we just give permission for those of us in our midst to lament the big things and the small things that we might meet you in these lamentations. We pray even now for those who 
don't even have words to speak. That you would teach us as a community to pray. And as we continue our service this morning in prayer, and as we, in prayer, meet you at your table, would you come by your spirit minister to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.